1: Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We uh, got a lot of things to talk about. You know, vaccine vaccine is, is, is in some ways the, the story of all stories. And, and and not just because I guess we're still... Um, I'm losing track now. I, I guess it was last week that we saw the, the British woman... Uh, elderly British woman uh, get uh, injected with the vaccine, and uh, now we're a couple days out from seeing people in the United States. Uh, it, it's it's been it's been a really long time in this country since we have seen events where people are giddy. You know, the people who won the election, Biden people, very excited you know there's a lot of people who are very excited that Trump lost that's you know it's sort of the it's sort of the the other side of the same coin there have been various things that have you know there were elements of excitement and happiness in the protests this summer obviously it was about a very uh tragic bad awful thing but there were but there were triumphs in the process of the protesting um but it's been a really long time since you see people like getting excited about something that is unambiguously good it's not it's not a it's not you know even even something with like biden winning and and let's broaden it out because biden wasn't every democrat's first choice obviously But the Democrats winning, ending Trump's presidency. A lot of people are excited about that. But again, it's part of, it's an excitement that is subsidiary to the disaster that we have seen over the last four years. And yet, the vaccine, even though I guess you could say something similar, but something just a little different. This is science, you know, kind of blowing through the door and coming to the rescue. And it really is, I mean, this, I think that the uh, forensic epidemiologists would say that this disease is about 13 months old. The sort of the earliest signs of it seem to go back to mid-November in China, and uh, and in the U.S., what first cases in January? Basically, less than a year. There's actually a vaccine that is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Um, and and I'm sure you've seen, like I saw. Uh, I can't remember the guys. Wait, is, is it Jared Polis? Is, is Jared Polis the governor of Colorado? Who I'm losing losing track of who's who. Anyway, the governor of Colorado. i, I spacing on on I, whether I have the right name. Uh, you know, like a lot of states, they did like a, kind of like a little ceremony, you know, waiting at the door for the FedEx guy to knock and, and bring in the vaccines. And um, again, there's just something, you know, y- you can look at that and you're like, wow, it's a vaccine. This is going to end. This is going to end. Uh, you know, we're not talking about a wave ending. We're not talking about someone getting out of the hospital. We're not talking about, you know, a kind of a, a a treatment that's promising this vaccine, uh, you know, we still don't know exactly how long the immunity lasts. But even if it turns out that it's, you know, short term, you get a booster every year. I mean, that would be a a continuing major public health thing to do, but that's doable, right? That's 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 not impossible. And the efficacy efficacy is amazing. It's like it's like well over ninety percent for most of these vaccines. And um, you know, flu vaccine I think is like seventy percent. You know, it's it's you you have to get into stuff like um, like the measles vaccine to have something that effective. So it has been a while since we have had a story that is just a hundred percent good and not only good, but wow, it's good to have a, a society when you invest a lot of money in the sciences. And this isn't just about, you know, kind of the immediate thing today in, in, in our era where Democrats are you know, kind of more funding science or Republicans are skeptical about science. This, we've been at science for hundreds, arguably for thousands of years. This is just a, a very exciting thing. And there are obviously challenges with, with um, getting people actually vaccinated. But this is not just something that will save a lot of lives. It will allow those of us who have remained healthy uh, to go back to living our lives, to see our friends, that those of us who have children can see their friends again. Uh, It will allow businesses to start functioning again. It's just a good thing. And so that is uh, going to be, you know, one of the big, big stories for months. And good because it's a good story. You know, there are challenges along the way. Um, I... I mentioned I, I did a post a couple days ago that was based um, entirely on the reporting of Josh Kovensky and our co-host Kate about, you know, the small issue that there's no plan to vaccinate everybody. Right. And there's no and they haven't put up they haven't put up a budget for it. Basically, uh, the Trump administration has a plan for the absolutely critical but relatively small part of the population that is people in. In assisted care facility, yeah, assisted care facilities, and healthcare workers, they are both the groups that absolutely need to go first. But that's a that's still a relatively small slice of the population. The uh, plan is that you can get those people vaccinated in December and January, and then kind of you go on to, you know, mass mass inoculation for the for the rest of the society. Only that is just being kind of. Left to the states, and there's no budget for it. And this is a massive undertaking. It would be hard for states to do it in any in any case. But states are already slashing every budget right and left because you know because of for the re, for the reasons we know about. So but, and so that is a problem. I'm sure we're going to get through that problem, but it is a big problem, and it is not insignificant that it is also a potential uh, political time bomb. Uh, probably designed intentionally to blow up on Joe Biden. That you know he got everybody totally excited about the vaccine now. And if people in the first days of February are going like, "Hey, where where the fuck is my vaccine?" They, you know, go, oh you know, Trump was killing it. I mean, you know, words have many meanings. Trump was killing it, and then Biden came in. What what's the deal? Why isn't Biden getting the vaccines out? So those are those are topics we are going to talk about. Before we do before we do. uh, Let me give you a quick word from our sponsor. Breaking weather report. We're looking at another dark, frigid winter with a 99% chance of crushing depression and Zoom fatigue. Wow, this copy is kind of a downer. (laughs) Uh, Warm up the winter blues with Grady's reusable all-in-one cold brew kit. With 36 servings per bag, our velvety smooth coffee concentrate is brewed strong for a caffeine kick you can enjoy hot or iced. Just add water. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at com with promo code TPM. That's com with promo code TPM. And I have my Grady's uh, right here, if you're watching on the video. You know, video. Josh,
0: the uh, impending snowstorm here kind of reminds me of that famous customer service experience where you got some Grady's just under the wire of a, a blizzard, in your Manhattan apartment? Yeah, right? I Wasn't think that
1: there's actually there's you know there's a there's a photo of it in our uh, the 20th anniversary uh, package that is going live today. Yeah, this was like in I don't think it was Sandy, maybe it was Sandy. There was some big you know nor'eastern hur- or hurricane, probably nor'easter, uh, uh, bearing down on us, and 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 uh, we didn't have any Grady's. and I I think maybe. I probably uh, tweeted like I need some Grady's. This is like this is like a serious public health emergency, and uh, Grady's sent out one of their one of their employees hand delivered a a a, uh, a shipment of Grady's to our apartment, and I mean you know we we bought it right. It wasn't like they didn't give it to us, but they uh, they they hand delivered it, and so this was you know. Uh, uh, long before I knew Grady or Grady was sponsor, or anything like that. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's real Grady service. Yeah. That's the rest is
0: history, I guess. Right? Yeah, exactly. I think um, that
1: must be how I got to know. Them.
0: Yeah. Our, our, for anyone listening, who's a fan of TPM, you should definitely check out our anniversary package. Lots of cool features, including a glossary of Josh Marshallisms, such as underbussing, which was one that I had kind of forgotten about, but uh a, a highlight there and some other great stories too. Um, so anyways, Kate, like Josh was uh, alluding to, can you tell us more about your reporting with Josh Kavinsky and and the kind of trouble with the vaccine? Because I think, like Josh mentioned, you know, it's very heartening to see, you know, the first vaccinations in the U.S. I thought it was kind of surprisingly moving to watch on Monday as um, I guess it was an ICU nurse in Queens or on Long Island, somewhere kind of over there, received, I think, the first The first dose of the vaccine in the U.S. And um, was she the first in the
1: U.S. or just first in New York?
0: I think the first, First she was the first in the U.S. Yeah. Kind of makes sense. New
1: York goes first, given,
0: (laughs) I mean, seriously, given everything
1: that happened. Yeah. I mean, given Trump's nonsense, but I'm in more just how it it began, you know, the sort of the trajectory of the epidemic in, in the United States.
0: Totally. So yeah. So pour some cold water on all of our happiness <laughs> and and good cheer. Okay. Tell us kind of what yeah. you found as you've been reporting.
2: I did. I did want to join in the cheer for a quick second. Just say kind of two things that um, two stats, I guess, that made the vaccines development. I don't know. Just putting it more context for me, someone who doesn't you know specialize in vaccine development, is that before this, the fastest vaccine that they developed was for the moms, I think. And it took four years. I mean, that just like throws it into such stark relief. And the other thing is that the FDA was prepared to approve a vaccine that had over 50% efficacy, which is just like, you know, that that's crazy that that's kind of the threshold that we were like expecting. And then we have these like 94, 95% effective vaccine. So, you know, That is my moment of celebration. (laughs) I
1: remember early early in the vaccine when 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 Fauci was talking about this in one of these White House press conferences, he talked about that, you know, you have the normal um, uh, trial period. Right. Mm -hmm. When 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 you're testing it. But he said sometimes you see a a a, what was the phrase he used? Um, I think he said an efficacy signal showing up. And if it's strong enough, you you call the trial off and you, you move ahead. I mean, not, you know, you probably continue, but Mm -hmm. basically if you get an early sign, you may move to production just because it's not, you know, this isn't some random thing that we just thought it might be a good idea to have a vaccine for. It's a public health emergency. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So now, like you say, DT to, to pour cold water on all that, Josh described it well, you know, the crux of the issue is that, The Trump administration has been pretty much abdicating all responsibility for the COVID pandemic from the beginning, Um, pretty much just leaving it to fall onto the states and local governments. But now we're at a place where this many months into the pandemic, Already chronically underfunded public health departments just are tapped. They are out of money, Um, their resources are being strained. You know, those poor employees who have just been through absolute hell, you know, at this point are now gonna be asked to like keep working enormous hours and try to help um, to do the vaccination campaign. And then you have this kind of incoming freight train that all the money that Congress was able to pass for state and local aid was kind of in this coronavirus you know, slush fund without the negative connotations. So like $150 billion pot that they would dole out to different states and local governments that needed them. Um, all of that money, that aid expires on December 31st. So whatever help the states had, and most of them have like run through their CARES money by this point, but that is running out anyway, which means that now as states are kind of turning to setting up this enormous effort, a mass vaccination campaign with a vaccine that requires two doses, different amount of time between the two doses for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. The Pfizer one has to be stored at super cold temperatures. You need a way to track how people are getting the vaccine. you know, all of this huge effort they're doing basically with no money. And even this week we've seen some movement on Capitol Hill about getting some COVID relief passed, but even now it looks very unlikely that the 160 billion that was initially allotted for state and local funding was basically siloed into a package that's not going to pass to ease the passage of the other part of the proposal, um, because so it, it was such so a poison pill to Republicans. Put
1: in that bill that where the uh, you know legal immunity stuff. Yeah, the liability shield
2: right. and state and local aid. That is what was siphoned out as the deal breaker to each party. Um, and just in case our listeners haven't been following, the liability shield deals with giving corporations and companies protection from employees suing them for making them work in dangerous working conditions during COVID, which that just puts it in pretty stark relief. That's Republicans poison pill, or uh, that's Democrats poison pill, state and local aid is Republicans poison pill. Now, the good news is that the package that seems likely to pass and the way they're doing this is basically just stapling it onto the funding bill to keep, the government from shutting down that has to pass this Friday. Um, that, it looks like it's going to include $6 billion directly for vaccine distribution and infrastructure. Um, so that will go to states to, to help them roll out the vaccine. Now, it's well under what a couple of the big groups of uh, immunizers said that they need. They said it'll minimum $8.4 billion to roll out the vaccine smoothly. But that'll be something. And then you also have the CDC um, already gave out some money kind of through a grant-type process to help states. They're doing another um, kind of unloading of, I think it's $150 million. So states can also apply to get a piece of that pie to help them. Um, but the problem is, with this funding just coming in now while the vaccine is already being deployed, that's a wave effect. That's going to slow down the whole process because now they're just kind of standing up these uh, processes to try to get things figured out. And kind of the, the political sabotage aspect of this is that whatever plan the Trump administration does have to deploy this initial wave, that's kind of the end of the road. You know, you run out of plank after that, there is no real plan for the next wave of vaccinations, which will be, you know, when everyone is getting vaccinated. There's not really much infrastructure there at all. It's much more of a, you know, we'll support the states however we can, um, which, as I say, are, are cash strapped and uh, struggling from a lack of resources. So that's kind of where we're heading in now. And something Josh and I have been focusing on for a piece that we're kind of in the works of writing is, okay. this is, you know, a volatile situation, whether or not it's kind of being done this way out of maliciousness to the Biden administration or because the Trump administration doesn't care or is abdicating responsibility either way you know, what can the Biden administration actually do, especially if Congress doesn't get it back together and get more money right to the states. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking at now. And a big piece of that is public messaging, because, you know, Trump has kind of led a good portion of the country to believe that COVID is overblown, not real, nothing worse than the flu. So that's a huge effort to overturn that. Um, and then you also have kind of a big public messaging effort that needs to be undertaken, especially for communities in America that have high levels of, you know, they call it quote-unquote physician distrust, you know, a lot of which, especially for the Black community, stems from decades of medical mistreatment. Um, So that's also something you have to overcome. And that bit of it is really important because especially Black Americans, especially Hispanic Americans, have been disproportionately ravaged by the pandemic. So, you also need to find a way to make sure the vaccine is getting allocated fairly and especially with a focus on those communities and that they don't get missed in this wave of relief as well, just kind of continuing the cycle of damage. Um, so, those are ways that the Biden administration can kind of control, you know, a messaging aspect, a bird's eye view to make sure the vaccine is getting allocated fairly across states um, and within states to these communities. But we are at a point where. You know, I spoke to someone at Kaiser yesterday who just told me we're kind of past the point where the federal government is going to be able to help in a real boots on the ground kind of way, because it takes a lot of time to set up those kind of, you know, that, those logistics. And um, by the time the Biden administration gets in, after we're in this like kind of dead zone right now, states are already going to have to be kind of jerry-rigging their own system um, to get vaccines to people.
0: Okay. Do you think, um, I mean, have you come across what some of the solutions might be? You know, I guess it just brings to mind some of the pop-up COVID testing sites, Mm -hmm. for instance, could those just be kind of, you know, turned into vaccination sites, you know, or pulling in more pharmacies or, you know, minute clinics or kind of urgent care facilities that are already doing the testing and such like that? Or is it too soon to tell exactly how they solved that problem?
2: Well, I mean, all of those are good ideas, but it also, that kind of goes to the the real lack of plan right now that those are good ideas, not necessarily anything that's more solid than that. But um, you do have pharmacies at this point kind of being pulled in, particularly to serve long-term care facilities like nursing homes. Um, And that's going to be a federal private partnership where the vaccine gets sent directly to, you know, CVS, Rite Aid, and then they have They send vaccinators right to the facilities, do the vaccinations there. They're in charge of, you know, reporting back the data and everything like that. And um, the vaccine is given at no cost to the pharmacies. So that's something that is being used in this kind of first wave of most urgent deployments that I think they'll probably, you know, try to continue that partnership with the the broader vaccination attempts, especially because, as you say, you know, some of the ways that people do the flu vaccine, for example, that might have been helpful if not for the season is you know big vaccination fairs where there it's outside you know you're in and out that kind of stuff is harder you know now that it's winter um and then you also have those stumbling blocks we've had all along which is covid makes being inside less safe and that is going to play a factor um, in these vaccinations as well especially if people are primarily going to you know their doctor to to get the vaccine
1: I guess one one thing that's worth mentioning here, and and correct me if I'm uh, if I'm wrong, Kate, that the it, it takes a month or so to develop your immunity. Whether you have one shot or two shots so so basically the point is it 's not no one should think well hey i 'm going indoors to get the shot, but i 'll have the shot, so even if there was some covid there i 'll be good so it is it does not work that way. You are still vulnerable to covid for a few weeks so on the on the c v s and I guess walgreens kind of places, I guess the idea is is that their personnel, the people they have who work for those companies who are the people that if you go to get your flu shot down at the local CVS, they've got people who know how to give an injection. I guess it's, you know, pharmacists can do it. And, you know, it's not, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a relatively straightforward thing, but I guess that, that, um, I mean, it's great that they have a, a plan to, to, to get those people. I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, I think t- two friends are acquaintances of mine um, who I've seen, and it's heartbreaking, people who, parents in long-term facilities, who have, who both got COVID in the last few weeks. I think one of them already died. Um, you know, just these, just, you know, weeks, weeks, weeks. And, 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 uh, I remember, uh, one of these people, again, just an acquaintance. I saw them discussing it on social media, and this woman was was, you know, had a sort of an incandescent rage in her in her words that, um, you know, the assisted living facility that her mother was in, by definition, had kept the people in that facility COVID free for what nine months eight months all this time you know totally locked down all the extreme measures you can imagine until you know three weeks ago a couple people got it then more and swept through the whole place and and i think her mother's already died um and you know obviously Elderly people in assisted living facilities have, have been dying in, in great numbers all year. There's just something particularly heartbreaking to think just a couple weeks, right? Just if, if it had just been a few weeks. So there's a lot of, uh, there is a lot of surplus of heartache and um, loss and anger that will take a long time to subside. That has, yeah, has I, come think, from this whole I think thing. that's
2: true, especially just... For older Americans you know across the board who have had to be so careful and you know like haven't even been able to kind of do the small things that people who are less at risk have done you know just grocery shopping or going to the pharmacy to get a new toothbrush you know it's just so it's just so grueling for them um, yeah so I don't know I'm, I'm very glad that at least they're being Prioritized in this first wave, you know the people who have sacrificed the most, the healthcare workers, and then older Americans.
0: Yeah. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the public messaging you were you mentioned kind of a little bit earlier? I'm curious. You know, have polls shown recently that maybe half of Americans are willing to get vaccinated, um, kind of right away, or maybe somewhere around there, which um, you know I guess what is our flu vaccination rate? Something like
1: that. Yeah. I think it's, isn't well. it less? I thought it was like, isn't it like 30%? I'm always surprised how low it is. But Kate, you would know you've been reporting on this.
2: I want to say in the mid 40s, but I haven't specifically right. reported on the flu since the summer. So that might be right. a little shaky in my head. But um. So
0: yeah. It so is, yeah, But the public the public messaging is sort of to obviously convince people it's safe, convince people they should get the vaccine. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you talked about obviously medical malpractice and distrust among certain um you know minority communities and things like that but um just talk to us a little bit more about that how to overcome some of those i don't know messaging challenges or to spread the word basically
2: yeah well it's even in a normal you know like getting the people that get the flu vaccine which has been around for a while and doesn't really have the same kind of uh, nerves maybe about how quickly it was developed or how new it is um It's really hard to get people to do that, partially because we have a very flourishing anti-vax movement in this country. Um, And then also kind of how I mentioned certain communities have more of a distrust of, you know, institutional medicine for good reason. But now there's the added layer of COVID and the fact that Trump has kind of stoked COVID conspiracy theories and there's been a complete vacuum of any federal messaging about it um and actually kaiser to go back to the conversation i had the other day is starting to do once monthly polls to try to gauge um vaccine confidence and when i was talking about the the one they just put out you know republicans were one of the highest groups of people who distrust the vaccine and who wouldn't get it and have concerns about it um
0: which, but Trump developed it himself, basically, and right. like Josh, like Josh, you wrote in his in the study in the White House. Right. So how could they not be on board with the well, awesome I think that's funny because, Trump vaccine?
2: Yeah, that idea, I feel like has has birthed a million thought pieces about how you just need to give Trump credit for the vaccine. So he'll tell people to get it, you know, and kind of fight back against that. And, you it, know, it,
1: In any normal presidency, the way this would shake out would be that. You know Biden's president; he's doing his thing, but Trump would be maybe informally deputized as like you know the apostle to Trumpers, right? right. Of of the person who's going to go out and 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 convince them it's all it's all going to be good. You, you know the one thing that occurs to me, and I, I'm sure this will be this is going to be a basic thing that is going to be a, such a challenge for the public health community is that on the one hand, you're going to have a big problem with people who are skeptics about vaccine, people who don't have, uh, you know, who don't have a doctor, who don't have health insurance. And maybe, sure, they can maybe, you know, maybe you're going to be able to go into the CVS and get it for free, but you're not kind of familiar with the medical system, blah, 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 blah. At the same time, you're going to have tens of millions of people who are going to be speed dialing their doctors and saying, give me the vaccine. I need it today. I need it today because I haven't been able to uh, do this thing and that thing and the other. You know, very understandable. We all want this to be over. But you're going to have both of those things happening at the same time, right? And, and uh, you know, one thing that struck me is you've mentioned a few times, Kate, rightly, that you have many... Historically marginalized communities in this country have a high rate of distrust of the medical profession. And some of that is just part of, you know, is inherent in what we call marginalization. You know, you're, you're pushed back from, from the centers of expertise and power and stuff like that, particularly the case for African Americans, because there's this whole history of literally using... Uh, African American populations as like guinea pigs in in healthcare studies. You know we have Tuskegee experiment. You know we know we know all that history, and one of the interesting things, and from one perspective you might say, and I I I would agree with this to a, to a significant extent because it's it's communities that have very little experience of this. But you have high one of the things that defines core Trumpism is people who have very low social trust. Now, the archetypal Trumper, you know, kind of uh, guy with a, I don't know, guy who's general contractor living in a, you know, kind of semi-rural area of a state, not doing too bad financially, high school degree, blah, 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 white man. Right. This is not a this is not a historically marginalized community, yet you do have some of you know similar similar attitudes about public trust and, and, and authority. You know, it's funny, I mean, It's funny. There's I don't know if any who will remember this, but there was this SNL sketch a few years ago. It had Tom Hanks and you, you the, the it's it's one of these sketches they've done a number of times called Black Jeopardy. Okay. And so what it is and and uh, Tom Hanks is a trumper, a white trumper, right? So they start the thing and everybody's like who, you know, kind of who's this guy right on Black Jeopardy? And the joke is and you got to have to see it. I'm I'm smart enough that I'm not going to try to get into the into the nuances of it. But that the black contestants, you know, basically their questions all have to do with, you know, not trusting authority, not trusting the man, ways to kind of uh, – uh, ways that people in African-American communities have different way of doing things that are different from the dominant culture. And the joke is that – the and I think it's two black women are the other contestants – they end up agreeing a lot with the Trump guy because they both have the same distrust right you have to see it but um but it is it 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 does uh you know th- this is not the thing about low vaccine trust in the Trump world is obviously hugely driven by Trump and him being a gigantic dick, and have and having screwed this up so badly, but it is a a sort of a taproot of Trumpism in the first place. Low social trust. You know, Hillary seems good. She's the worst. She's you know she she's just doing it for the money, and she's in you know she's in bed with the people, exporting the job. You know all that kind of. All that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, a lot of challenge with this vaccine and the things that, um, the things that will make the, that will make it hard to get people to buy into the vaccine are the same things that really bedevil our society and our political process.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe we can, um shift gears a little bit, spend the last uh, part of the show talking about the incoming Biden administration. Obviously, on Monday, we had the official Electoral College vote certifying his win once again. So much winning over the <laughs> last uh, month and a half for Joe Biden. Georgia three times or so, Wisconsin a couple times, right? And now um, and now it's official. And, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell finally came out and said, congratulations to the president-elect. Only like, you know, a month and a half late, <laughs> but um, Biden has been building out his his administration. I think maybe just in the last twenty four hours, we've had a couple key nominees named, including um, Mayor Pete Buttigieg for Transportation Secretary and uh, former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm as Energy Secretary. I believe, right? Um, Kate, you had mentioned you had some thoughts kind of about how it's how it's shaping up. Let's hear, let's hear some of those. Well,
2: yeah, my thoughts are mostly on Buttigieg, I'll say, but I don't know. I'm interested to hear what your guys' reaction was, but when I saw yesterday that he was being named transportation secretary, it's just like, what? Why? What possible experiences <laughs> he have in transportation? And to some degree, I kind of think he was chosen the same way that Biden has chosen his whole cabinet, which is, here are the people that I want to choose, now let's, try to match them as best we can with a, a cabinet position um, yeah
0: it kind of yeah sorry no go ahead, go ahead. it kind of felt like a consolation prize a little bit for Judge. um you know obviously he's like a young guy and a sort of a rising star in the party I think he's gotten like some praise so to speak for like his Fox News hits and stuff like that kind of like going against the grain a little bit um I loved Amy Klobuchar's Midwestern shade that she threw at, <laughs> at Buttigieg saying, like, oh, your local government experience will be such a great asset to the, um, the Biden administration. Bonsai
1: government experience. Exactly.
0: Which is kind of a classic Midwestern nice thing not being <laughs> so nice. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, Granholm, I don't know much about her experience with the energy sector at all other than, I guess you know, she's a former state executive and, you know, she's someone cars. who's been in the party for yeah, the cars, exactly cars, Michigan and, cars. Yeah. I, I was, I was, almost, I was, that almost makes more sense for transportation in <laughs> well, a way, it's, right? It's, when you think about it,
1: it's funny because I, I was actually, I, I didn't, I, I know who Granholm is. Um, uh, you know, she's been out of office for a while. uh, I was a little surprised to see that she's actually getting a pretty big thumbs up for people on the sort of the, the more left side of the green, you know, sort of climate movement that they're pretty into her. Um, I guess she's, you know, she's made, this is a big issue for her. Um, So I was, and, and with the, with the Buttigieg thing, you know, look, (laughs) one of the primary historically, one of the primary qualifications for being transportation secretary is not being qualified. I mean, it, it's just true. It's just true, right? I mean, it's actually, there's, I just glanced, and in the last uh, 20 years or so, I think there's been at least two other mayors who've gotten the gig. You know, transportation is um, is a very core issue in in local government, always. Traffic, do you going to put in, you know, public transportation, roads? You know, it's, it is it is a kind of a core um, local government issue. Uh, it's also often, you know, it's kind of a consolation prize. You know, it's a cabinet, set, you know, cabinet, but like, come on. Right? I mean, barely. Right? Um, you know, so, uh, I, I don't know. People have, people have strong feelings about Pete. I mean, they really do. That that I just, uh, uh, you know, they, they just have strong feelings about him. I guess I'll put it that way.
2: My thing with it is just, I get it. Transportation is a more minor secretary position. And, you know, you get to make history by having the first presumably Senate confirmed openly gay cabinet secretary. And, you know. Pete put in put in the steps for the Biden administration. So they're trying to kind of both foster his rising star and thank him for that. But I guess my initial reaction was to me, the most important thing that the Biden administration has to do is curb climate change. It has to be the first administration we've had that like meaningfully makes it a constant priority. And it's just we're at the point where. If that doesn't happen, we don't have to bother talking about it anymore because we've fully written our fate. But while it's still maybe a little bit reversible, it is his his place in history has to be to keep the climate disaster from escalating. And I just think if the Democrats lose Wait, the Georgia Biden
1: or or Buttigieg,
2: well, I'm talking about Biden in general. Okay, right. But I was about or, yeah, to go absolutely, into absolutely. if. If the Democrats lose the runoffs in Georgia, the only way that he is going to be able to do that is through, you know, the regulatory powers, through the cabinet, through the agencies. And transportation seems to me to be an area where you can affect really meaningful climate related change, um, you know, whether that be through making public transit work better and be more robust um, or, you know, electric vehicles or you know, whatever, all that stuff. It just seems to me a prime area that change can be made. And I think Buttigieg is a smart person. And so I, my hope is that he kind of gets these, you know, gets undersecretaries or top deputies who actually know something about the transportation sector or who have worked extensively with public transit or something and kind of dedicates himself to, learning some stuff and just spending his whole time there trying to make, you know, to make green transportation a thing, you know, more of a thing than it is now.
0: And I guess one of the challenges for Biden, too, is that because the Senate majority is literally in the balance. And if the if both runoffs go Democrats way, it's literally a 50 Fifty split plus Kamala Harris being the tiebreaker that you can't name any sitting senators to your cabinet, right? So the fact that Mayor Pete is available, I guess, is a plus for him, right? You can't have Klobuchar, like I mentioned, or Elizabeth Warren, for that matter, or you know, because they're kind of they're needed in the Senate for um, kind of any hope of legislating during Biden's term. I, I,
1: I think, I, I think there's definitely been a legitimate hit on Biden that. A, a, a big factor for him is trust. I don't think it's being friends or chummy. I think it's trust. He he is really focused on, I know that person, trust that person, I can work with that person. You know, that's something like, uh, oh God, I'm spacing on his name. I actually know the guy, the guy who got VA, um, Dennis McDonough. Um, that is a case, yeah, that that, that you know, that doesn't, not a, not an obvious thing there for to be VA. Dennis is a really good administrator, so I actually think he'll be really good at it. But that was a case where it's really clear he he's he's worked very closely with Dennis. Dennis was was uh, like chief of staff for the National Security Council, and then eventually chief of staff. So, kind of, I trust that guy. I want that guy in the mix high up. Um with and and so that is i think that's a that's a that's a legit critique um with with Buttigieg. this is pretty standard he was you know he was one of the strong presidential you know contenders just by definition i'm not saying he was great but he you know he was one of the relatively last people standing you know he got support blah 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 People in those positions get cabinet positions. That's just that's just kind of uh, that's that's tradition. Um, and uh, he's out of work, right? I mean, he needs a job. Even aside from not looting the Senate and that kind of stuff. And and Biden. I mean, again, that part of it, I think, is just that is how our politics works, for better or worse. Um, but there's also, I mean. I think the other thing that Biden is doing Biden is you know the word transactional has gotten a very bad reputation with with uh, Donald Trump but Biden is a is a fairly transactional politician in a somewhat different sense of just like you know Get everybody, get all the key people together. Make sure no one feels excluded. You know, different groups, different kind of ideology. You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think he is, and I think he's done a relatively good job at this. He has been extremely focused on. I'm not putting together an administration that is heavily identified with one viewpoint in the party, one clique in the party. I'm trying to make everybody feel included right um and i think the Buttigieg thing is to a significant extent part of that i mean it's the transportation department come on
0: right and i think is it true i thought i thought i saw a report today to maybe by was the transportation department Right. Biden was eyeing maybe a Republican or two for his cabinet. Oh, my God. Don't
2: do it. So stupid. As
0: Commerce Secretary or something. Yeah. Uh, Obama
2: already did it. We know what happens. You get a thumbs up for like two hours and then you have to work with a Republican in your cabinet. My God. Haven't we learned? Although wasn't
0: wasn't Ray LaHood Obama's Transportation Secretary also a Republican in the first term? Yes, he was. He was a
1: Republican, you know, moderate Republican. I mean, I think that I I saw someone... um, saying that, uh, oh God, what is her name? Uh, Meg Whitman, my, but you know, Meg Whitman at this point, I mean, I think she, I think she supported Biden. Right. Like a More lot an
0: of an anti-Trump conservative. Yeah. I mean, type. you've
1: got a lot of these people who are, um, y- y- you've, you've got a lot of nominal Republicans who are kind of not really clear they're Republicans anymore. I mean, they McJohn may still Kasich, cons-
0: kind of, and
1: yeah, I mean, you know, well, Kasich, Kasich's a little different. He was recently in office. Uh, Kasich's actually a pretty conservative guy. But you've got, you know, people like Meg Whitman, who I don't think was ever a particularly ideological – she's CEO, she's, you know, a Richie, Um, and and has very little truck with the Trumps. You know, so some of these people are kind of – you know, it's hard to say they're even like you know Republican. I mean, it would be sort of like if someone like, oh, I'm going to put Colin Powell in. He's a Republican. Well, no, he's not. He's, he's he, he supported Obama twice. You know, I think he supported Clinton. Um, but I certainly, I, I certainly agree. You know, look at, at a certain level, you're just trying to kind of check a box and not the end of the world. But I do, and maybe this is something we can talk about in the next episode. It is really, really important that Democrats take what I think is one of the critical lessons from the Obama years is that you don't get into dances of engagement with Republicans because good faith interacting with bad faith is an asymmetric losing proposition. So the whole idea of, oh, we're going to kind of, you know, there was this, this, this whole kind of blow up this morning with uh, O'Malley saying, what is it, you know, Republicans are fuckers or something like that. And everybody, oh, you know. Um,
0: the, so much for the, unity. And yeah, so much for unity.
1: Together. And uh, this is, you know, burning bridges with Trump. So, no, we need to move on the basis of you people are incredibly hostile to us, you're very destructive, we think what you have done is terrible. If you want to say that's calling you fuckers, we do think you're fuckers. And if there's some things we can work on together, let's do it for the country. But let's not get into this thing where we're kind of like, oh, uh, let's, let's you know, you know, Obama just spent months and years trying to kind of line things up and, and, and find common ground. And he was just being punked constantly, constantly. Just like the Lucy and the football thing. You know, the reason we almost didn't get Obamacare is that he spent a year trying to find like half a dozen Republicans who he could, find, you know, bring them along and make it bipartisan. But they were just playing him. And And we can't do that anymore. It
2: rankles me so deeply, this idea of we are in a situation where the majority of Republicans in Congress were actively supporting an effort to undermine our democracy. And the Democratic response is, you know what, we're going to put one of you in the cabinet, even if it's a, a rhino or whatever. I just think the optics of that are insane. And it's just it's to me it's what you're saying. It's the Obama situation all over again. And you, not only is it stupid to try to meet good faith with bad faith, but you get nothing for trying. You get nothing. You barely get credit, much less any political heft. I mean, if there's anything we've seen from this election, it's that the core of the Republican Party is being anti the Democratic Party. And that's always true in politics to some degree, but it's just reached a level with the Republican Party that it's you know, even if it means I'm going to go out there without my mask and go to a bar and die of COVID, I'm going to do it anyway, because you don't like it, liberals. Like, that's insane. We've reached such a fever pitch that I just think at all going back to this thing of acting like Republicans are a normal functioning party right now is just so stupid on so many levels. And again, Biden will get no credit for trying. Republicans who are you know, accepting the kinds who, you know, have kind of, the Mitt Romneys, accepting those, but the Republicans in the base are not going to be like, you know what, he tried to unify with us, so let's give him credit. No, it's going to be taking out, taking his legs out from him on day one, no matter the cost to the American public. And acting like the party is anything other than that right now is just going to be shooting himself in the foot constantly. And he already has such a, you know, limited set of resources to work with that that would just be so infuriating.
1: I, I I would I completely agree with you. I would say this. I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep if if he, uh, be, um, you, you know, nominates a Republican for something. Whatever. I don't really care about that. But I care greatly about the basic posture that he that he approaches governing in the next four years. And one of the very basic things has to be: we are not going to. We are we will not engage with destructive, anti-democratic, small D democratic players with with any kind of kabuki theater or nonsense about their feelings and about how, oh, you know, we were we were all going to get along. But then it turns out uh, you said Lindsey Graham isn't nice and it's over. You really have to make almost like a pledge we're not going to do that. You guys showed what you're about. We want to change that. We want to try to save the country and we are going to use every legitimate power we have to do that and if you want to you you, you want to get involved, great. The door is open, but we're not going to wait for you to come through the door we're not going to beg you to come through the through the door we may send you uh, at the beginning directions to get to the door, but that's it. Yeah. Because that is just it. Not only is it not effective and time wasting, but it is demoralizing to your supporters and it signals weakness, signals weakness. One of the things that, um, one of the things that, Donald Trump showed is in, in in the process of breaking a lot of things, <clears throat> you know, um, uh, you have to just produce things for your, for, uh, for your constituents, not just for your people, the way he did with farmers, but you have to show we can do things. We can, we can, we can uh, make things happen for you that, um, that change the equation for you. There's reason to vote for us. It's not all kind of rah rah, and your team. Uh, we can actually produce things. So, um, yeah, that's really key. And as I said, uh, if he if he nominates one Republican, that's kind of just old time tradition. He's an old guy. Whatever. I don't care about that. But the posture he he takes to governing is critical.
2: I also do think this might be kind of the way that Rahm Emanuel was to the transportation secretary job in that by kind of like leaking that he was a shortlist contender people got so pissed and then when it was judge, they were like okay well at least it's not Rahm Emanuel you know like that was some ground softening and this could be a case of it's going to be a Republican and then it ends up being someone like you know far too moderate for people's taste or something like that and then you're like Okay, well, not a Republican. Right. So like, so.
0: It's like Jamie Dimon instead or something like yeah. that, like the <laughs> CEO of J.P. Morgan. But uh, maybe that's a good place to leave it today. Um, yeah. Covered a lot of ground.
1: We did. Well, remember, uh, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is a sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. You can get 25% off your first order at gradyscoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. Mike, Christmas next Mike week. Drop. We'll
0: be back Maybe we'll be back with an earlier in the week episode next week to uh, accommodate the holiday or something. But talk to you guys then. All right. Later, folks. Bye. All right. Bye.